Governor, Prime Minister, ladies and gentlemen, I've been asked by Her Majesty the Queen to read the following message. Five hours from now, the Union flag will be lowered and the flag of China will fly over Hong Kong. More than a century and a half of British administration will come to an end. During that time, Hong Kong has grown from a small coastal settlement into one of the leading cities and one of the greatest trading economies in the world. So I have Dan tears rolling down his face right now. I have visions of a little boy in, in Shrewsbury on June 30th, 1997, running in, asking his parents, what, what's happened to our empire? Is that right, Dan? <laughs> they are um, tears of shame rather than pride, Gav, I have to say. Um, I, I, I know how nice of the Queen to not bother going there to send Prince Charles instead. That is just <laughs> typical royal family. Uh, I don't know, put inserted BP here, Gav, because I want to say all the swear words. Anyway, let's go on some nicer matters. You're cracking a beer there. What have sure you got am. going on? This week, uh, I am Thornbury Village. Damn Dark Lager. So, as you know, it's another one of my latest collections of darker beers. Uh, and we'll see how the pour goes this week. As I do that, what are you having? Well, I'm kind of, again, like last time, I've gone for a beer that's far too strong, which is unlike me. So I've got a Gonzo Imperial Porter by Flying Dog. And, it, and it's, honestly, it's a bit pokey. Yeah, 10%. Yeah, Imperial Porters can give you a good kick. Oh yeah, so yeah, I don't know, we'll see. This this rather than dancing around, this might be send me to sleep, although uh I doubt it because we've got a very good guest today. But before I introduce, let me just have a little sip of this. Yes, I'll have your sip. Uh that little introduction sort of splays into what we have tonight, uh, as the last vestiges of the British Empire disappeared. Hong Kong, and I'll let uh, Dan you set this up today. Well, I'm really, really happy to have uh, Sean Dunlop on the podcast. Um, he's one of the earliest supporters of this pod. Um, he's a great guy. Um, you know, he's uh, he's uh, currently actually in Phuket, Thailand, so he's re- recording this when he's just got out of bed, pretty much. Um, and when he's not teaching or thinking about teaching, he's um, you know he's just a sports mad guy. Um, loves Formula One, um, the Cleveland Browns, who seem like they're going to be good, but not anymore. Um, <laughs> he you know loves his football, QPR fan. Know knows an awful lot about it, um, and uh, you know I actually say he's probably one of the only Canadians I've met who actually understands the rules of cricket and why people would like it. So um, you know, really, really pleased to have him on. And uh, yeah, so Sean, you know, say hello. And uh, what what are you doing in Thailand aside from teaching over there? Yeah, hi Gavin, hi Dan. Um, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, when I'm when I'm not teaching, I'm thinking about where I can travel to next. Um, I do love it here in Phuket, but uh, I think as most people are in the world, kind of eager to to resume uh, some kind of normalcy when it comes to travel. So it's a big world out there. Um, I'm excited to see you know where else I can go. But before I leave Thailand, uh, I definitely want to uh, travel around here and uh, and go to some of the uh, the domestic uh, football fixtures around here because it's its own very unique league that uh, I'd love to explore some more. And uh, I have to well, before we talk about Hong Kong, I have to ask this: is is Phuket kind of in some ways ruined by British people, like a lot of places around the world? 
um, there there are quite a few uh, quite a few Brits here. Uh, I would say there's probably more Australians in terms of uh, an expat community, just in terms of its location. Um, but but I've met some really some really lovely Brits here in Phuket, so it, it's not all bad. Okay, good. And how long have you been there for now? Uh, it's been almost two years. It'll be two years in uh, in March, so uh, coming up to that anniversary. Now Phuket isn't that isn't that the famous uh, the thing that the the beach by Leonardo DiCaprio that has since been ruined by Western tourists? Yeah, that's right. They they film those on the PP Islands, which are uh, not far from Phuket. Um, a couple of years ago, they had closed. Uh, the government had closed uh, the beach where it was filmed because it was overrun by tourists. Um, but it's good to see that uh, environmentally, uh, places like that are starting to come back um, because of action taken by governments and environmental uh, activists. And then the pandemic as well, having uh, kind of curtailed all the tourism activities. Um, it's good to see sort of nature coming back on its uh, on its feet here. And just another question about Phuket. I know we'll get into the uh, the Hong Kong side of things in a second. Phuket was hard hit by the uh, tsunami in 2004. What's it like there these days? Yeah, it's, uh, that's still an event that kind of uh, lives in the memory of the people here. Um, there are a few memorials kind of dotted around uh, the island. Uh, the west side of the island was hit uh, particularly hard. Um, a lot of the uh, tourist towns uh, that are really popular and were popular at the time were uh, were devastated uh, by that tsunami. Um, and people are still sort of keenly aware of that. They've, they've since uh, set up a, a pretty good warning system in the Andaman Sea to, to, to warn people of that because that's what caught people off guard is people just didn't know what was going on uh, at the time when it hit uh, that morning. But um, yeah, it was, it was really devastating, but it, it's come back. I think even within the, a year after that had happened, uh, tourists began coming back and hotels were reconstructed and uh, it was thriving there until, until very recently. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what a transformation. It's lovely to hear that it's come back and strong. I mean, you know, it kind of puts us into Hong Kong subjects as well. You know, what a, what a transformation that place um, went through. I'm sure we'll touch on that um, shortly. But first of all, uh, when did you arrive in Hong Kong and why Hong Kong? Why did you choose to go and stay in Hong Kong for a bit? Yeah, it was uh, February 2017 uh, when I had arrived in Hong Kong. And um, a few months prior to that, I had uh, acquired my uh, my TEFL certification, which enabled me to, to, to go anywhere, really, and, uh, and teach English. And um, in terms of uh, high-earning locales, uh, you can earn a lot of money in, in Hong Kong. And for someone who uh, was paying off uh, pretty high student loan debts, that was very appealing. Um, but uh, there was also the cultural, I think, appeal of, of Hong Kong. It was a place that I didn't know a lot about, um, but it has a, a fantastic mix and, and fusion of Eastern and Western cultures. Um, so it wasn't a complete uh, sort of culture shock uh, to go there. Uh, it, it's, it is quite different from other places in Asia in that it still has sort of its, it maintains its kind of Western tendencies and, you know, you don't need to know Cantonese or Mandarin to get on there. Um, so it was a good, 
sort of soft landing spot uh, for me in Asia and, and set me up well to to be able to travel travel elsewhere as well. Now it's been it's been well over twenty years now since the the changeover happened, and so um, you know one thing I am so curious about because I think I've seen the old Hong Kong flag flying and some of the the pro-democracy protests that have happened over the last little bit. Uh, what influence is there still with British culture? I mean, is it sports-wise, food-wise? I mean, I, I, don't th- I don't imagine they have things like, you know, eel pie and all those other British foods that Dan enjoys. <laughs> uh, in, term, in terms of, uh, you know, Sunday roasts and Sunday brunches were, were still very popular. Okay. Um, there, is a, there is a very large uh, and quite vibrant expat community. There are still a lot of, of Brits uh, working there uh, in finance, uh, teaching. Um, so there is still that, uh, you know, a legacy that has kind of carried over to, to the modern day. Um, yeah, and it's it's been fascinating to see how it's developed in the 20 years since, since uh, it's been returned to China. And does it kind of like... Um... No, in cuisine and stuff like that, because obviously, you know, the, the version of Chinese food we get in North America is you know, very unlike uh, Chinese food. But, you know, what what does Hong Kong get? Is Hong Kong food like Chinese food? Is it like the version of Chinese food we get in North America or do they have a very unique you know, cuisine compared to the rest of China? Uh, it's, it's, it's regional. It's definitely different than uh, what I would find in uh, back home in Canada. Um, you know, you don't have your chop suey or your general Tao chicken that, that just doesn't exist. Uh, um, dim sum is really popular uh, in Hong Kong. So if you don't know what that is, it's a sort of where you gather uh, around and kind of sample um, uh, dumplings and pork buns. And uh, there's a whole set of puddings, all kinds of uh, sort of tapas style kind of uh, foods uh, that you can eat. So that's popular sort of culinary delight among uh, people in Hong Kong. But street food is really good. There's some fantastic noodle shops and congee, um, uh, you know, boiled rice and rice soups. That's really popular. Um, Hong Kong also has its own sort of local quirky foods like uh, macaroni in uh, tomato soup was something that you could order at the sort of local cafes. Uh, they do some really good French toast and uh, and tea. Uh, Hong Kong style milk tea is 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 really good. Uh, it's black tea and has um, condensed milk that's kind of poured into it that makes it you know really quite sweet. Um, but yeah, the food there food there is uh, it's a food haven. If you love food, if you love travel, if you love sports, uh, Hong Kong is is a place to visit. What is what is the dominant sport there? Is it I mean with the British influence or Soccer, cricket, rugby, any of those. I know there's a Rugby Sevens there, I believe, event. Yeah, uh, the Rugby Sevens, I want to say in April they they, were, they would host that. And that's that's definitely the biggest sporting event uh, in Hong Kong um, every year. It's, it's in the really modern, uh, beautiful 40,000-seat Hong Kong Stadium. Uh, and that stadium is kind of really – that event is kind of really the only, uh, you know, marquee event that it hosts. Uh, but yeah, football is still uh, is still quite popular. I think football is more popular with uh, the older generation um, there. Uh, basketball, badminton, uh, table tennis is more popular with uh, with the younger kids. Uh, but there is still you know 
rugby is very popular. Cricket is quite popular. Uh, I was lucky to attend a few cricket matches when I was in Hong Kong as well, which was fascinating. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a very active and, and fit city. Um, when we think of Hong Kong, I think we think of sort of that urban concrete jungle and that does exist, but dotted uh, around Hong Kong are these really beautiful parks and playgrounds where you'll see people of all ages and at all times of the day and night uh, exercising and working out. Um, there are some really amazing hiking trails. Uh, I think some of the best in Asia uh, that exist, you know, just a few minutes away from the city in Hong Kong. And you find yourself in this really idyllic uh, forest setting where you can't hear the traffic and you can see the birds and you can take in the, the lush greenery. And it's, uh, yeah, I, those, are the, those are the things that I really miss about Hong Kong is being outdoors and, and active. Yeah, something you don't always imagine because you see these, you know, the, well, you see the facts like the, the most skyscrapers in all the world and, uh, you know, just some of this like uh, just the cityscape is just quite breathtaking, really. And you don't imagine these kind of nature walks and stuff like that. I mean, like how, how, how far exactly do you go out of the city and how long can you go on a walk without seeing anybody? Like it, it seemed this is something I never knew about Hong Kong you could do. Yeah, so I think um, the there is more more than half of, of the territory because it's not just Hong Kong Island. It's sort of uh, split into into three parts. So uh, when we think of Hong Kong, we often think of the skyscrapers and the, the really dense um, uh, financial centers and sort of the urban jungle that's on Hong Kong Island. Uh, but then there's also the, the Kowloon Peninsula and what's considered the, the new territory. So that's the, the area that is closest to the mainland Chinese border. Uh, and especially in the new territories, it's still very green. There's a lot of uh, peaks and, and rolling hills that you can get out to to explore. And, and you don't have to get very far from the city. A, a 10 minute or 15 minute bus ride, even from uh, the center of, of Hong Kong Island into uh, sort of the interior of the island where the, the peaks kind of uh, rise up to form a ridge and you find yourself in this, as I said, very idyllic, very quiet um, setting where you can see the city below, um, but you can't really hear it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, as I said, again, it's, it's something that I really miss about Hong Kong is being able to escape from uh, the density and, and the traffic and the noise and the pollution and be in this, uh, you know, just fantastic um, rural setting that's so close to, to the city. There's a there's a funicular that goes up to the top of the hill, isn't there? There is. There's a there's a tram that goes up. I never had the pleasure of riding it, uh, but that was because anytime I, I thought of it, there was always a, a queue that was just far too long of people uh, queuing up to to take it, and uh, I couldn't be bothered waiting in line for it. And uh, hiking up is much more is much more enjoyable, in my opinion. I was going to ask about that because I think there were friends who went there as part of their honeymoon and they did a, a hike or a run up. And I was just wondering if they were completely insane for doing that or if it's something that, you know, normal people do. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very popular. Um, yeah, I, I would enjoy enjoy walking. There's, there's some great apps that kind of can guide you uh, to and along, uh, you know, the hiking trails in Hong Kong. And as I said, I think there's some of the best in Asia. It's a, it's a fantastic uh uh, urban but active and and has those hikes that you can do at any time no i was, I was looking at the you know to kind of like 
budget to along back onto sport for a second because like I I saw like basically it's not a massive area of Hong Kong. It's about the same about under eight percent of the metropolitan area of New York City. So it's not a big place. So for me you're saying like, you know, forty thousand people go and watch rugby eight, you're getting these, you know, kind of biggish cricket events and then I was looking at the um football pyramid there and there are fifty four teams. Um <laughs> like I think that maybe only ten or a few more, ten or a few more than ten are professional. But still, that is a lot of teams to fit into the area that is under ten eight percent of uh, New York City. Like, how does this work? <laughs> uh, yeah. So the um, uh, the any of the of the lower league teams, you would find them on a Saturday or Sunday playing in in the parks and playgrounds. There'd be uh, more than once I would, uh, you know, be going for a Sunday stroll and someone's walking their dog and the dog escapes on the leash and you know gets onto the pitch. Uh, you know, and this is in the second division uh, uh, fixture. Um, but uh, Hong Kong is sort of divided into different districts. I think there are eighteen districts in total, and each district kind of has its own club. Um, and a few of them share, uh, share, uh, the grounds. Uh, there are really only one or two sort of modern and, uh, intimate and uh, sort of football focused grounds for it. And as I said, sort of some of the lower divisions will just be playing in, in a park, uh, with some goalposts set up and some lines painted on the grass. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, the, uh, Football there is as dense as uh, as as the the population, and by dense I don't mean dumb or stupid. I mean it's, uh, <laughs> there's just a lot. Uh, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> now, one thing I'm wondering, uh, there was a the the uh, my knowledge of Hong Kong soccer. I think it extends to Kitchi FC. Back in the day when I was writing for MLS. When I'd be doing sort of the roundup, I'd you know look for where the Canadians are playing, and there was a guy named I think Matt Lamb who who played for Kitchi, and so every week I'd see how he did. Uh, can can guys make decent livings there, or what's it? Do you hear how much they make at all? Uh, I, I do remember Matthew Lamb. Uh, he was a pretty good midfielder there. I think he was from Edmonton, uh, but he had been uh, he had been living, I think. Now naturalized as a, as a Hong Kong uh, citizen, there uh, playing for for Kitchi, or might have been Eastern, might have been with the other the other uh, kind of popular and successful club there. Um, but yeah, after matches, you know, when I would be going home, I would see the players, you know, in their in their uh, in their training gear on the train going home with me. Um, I, you know, they, they, these guys weren't weren't rolling in Rolls Royces or or Lambos. <laughs> uh heading home it's it's uh you know quite modest living uh, i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these guys worked worked jobs during the day um when they weren't playing so it, but the uh, the quality was still quite good um i think the the hong kong premier league uh the style of play is not the most attractive uh but it is physical it's fast um you know a lot of the uh a lot of the players aren't particularly big, uh, but they are quick and they are speedy. Um, so the, the quality of play wasn't, wasn't terrible. It was more the style of play where, you know, defenders or midfielders were kind of booted up the field and hope that the, the striker could, could get to it first and get on the end of it old, and, and old finish. Old school British, um, old school English. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
but uh, but every club and uh, and even the Hong Kong national team uh, has a lot of uh, Brazilian-born players who uh, who kind of bring their own flair uh, to the uh, to the matches, and um, uh, yeah, it's just it's a really really interesting setup and by far the most uh, fascinating for me for someone who loves to be able to to uh, to go out and um, you know take in. The, the local matches and be able to go visit all the grounds in one day if I wanted to because everything is so close and still be in my own bed uh, at nighttime. Uh, it's, uh, it's a really fascinating setup that they have there. Were there any other you know, footballers whose name listeners might recognize as well that you saw playing over there? Uh, there were two that, that stood out to me. There was one that uh, many, many people would know. Um, the, the first one, though, and was a guy that I had the, the pleasure of seeing a few times because he always seemed to be in the in the match that I was going to attend was uh, Zesh Rayman. Uh, he oh, was yeah. Uh, former, yeah. Yeah, yeah Q, former, Q, uh, Q, QPR and Bradford he played for, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, the QPR. I think I think he uh, his sort of no, notable uh, accomplishment was being the first uh, British Asian to appear uh, in a Premier League match. He's a Pakistani international. Um, and I think he was with Fulham at the time when, mm-hmm. uh, when he made that appearance, but, uh, he's now a player manager for one of the clubs there in Hong Kong. He's been there for a while. Um, uh, but the, <laughs> uh, the player who, uh, was certainly most popular and, uh, seemed like a coup that anyone in, in Hong Kong could have, uh, could have acquired him, uh, even at the age that he was, was uh, Diego Forlat. Uh, he came to uh, he came to Kitchi and uh, uh, I think they acquired him uh, for their their Champions League uh, group stage fixtures. So I think he might have only played you know less than five of the domestic uh, league fixtures, uh, and he was just there to kind of you know bring some some quality to their to their Champions League uh, their AFC Champions League uh, fixtures and. Um, uh, I went to go see Kitchi a few times, and I was always disappointed that he wasn't on the pitch. Um, they were always playing away from home, so uh, I never got to see him in the flesh. But uh, yeah, he was he was by far the, the biggest player to ever grace the uh, the grass in in Hong Kong. Was it was it a big deal, sort of media wise, when he when he joined up? Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, coming from the, the clubs that he had represented before, uh, you know, to come to a very you know, we, we see now a lot of uh, international players coming to China for big money. Um, and I can't imagine that he was coming to Hong Kong for big money because I just don't think that they had the budget for for that. Um, but yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, uh, people in Hong Kong love their global leagues. The, the Premier League is very popular. Uh, it's not uh, uncommon to see, uh, to see you know, people wearing Chelsea or Arsenal or... Uh, Manchester United uh, jerseys around around town. Um, so for for someone uh, you know, someone of quality like like him to come to Hong Kong of all places, even for the short the short period that he was there was big news for sure. And um, these matches when Diego Forlan's not playing or Sesh Raymond's not playing, like how many people you get at these games? Is it you know a good strong intimate atmosphere or is it quite sparse? You know, like how much of a culture is there for football at these games? Well, the grounds were were always very small. Um, most of them, you know, had no more than maybe five thousand uh, capacity. 
so it was always very, very intimate, um, sort of only kind of broken by the, the public use running track that would go around the, uh, go around the pitch that's in the middle. Um, and when I would go, I would always see uh, sort of the older generation. It was a lot of retirees that would go on their Saturday or Sunday afternoon with, uh, you know, with, with their neighbors or with their mates. Wasn't really uh, wasn't really a family atmosphere. It wasn't always the most exciting. There would always be a few sort of supporters with drums and and, and scarves and uh, uh, megaphones, kind of in, in one corner of the pitch, um, you know, kind of bringing a little bit of excitement. But it was always a sort of yeah, sort of like a, an activity you would do on a lazy weekend afternoon is is go go to a match there and, and kind of take it all in. Um, and for me, it was just, you know, you know, I made a point of when I went to Hong Kong was I want to, uh, I want to be able to visit every ground that I can. Um, they're all in Hong Kong. There's one team that plays in, uh, in Guangzhou, which is about an hour away by train. But, you know, being, being able to kind of travel around the territory and visit different grounds, that, that was the most appealing, appealing thing to me. Anytime I go to uh, a new place, I'm always looking at, you know, what's the, the sporting culture there like and can i visit the the arenas and the stadiums that are that are around in, in hong kong it's totally possible so what was your what was your sort of local team what was your team there and what what's match day like guide us guide us kind of through the fan experience the food any of that yeah so i was lucky to uh to be living in uh really the center of of kowloon in, in mong kok mong kok is uh is one of the most uh busiest and, and densest neighborhoods in the entire world. I think uh, the population density is uh, 140,000 people per square kilometer, which compared to Toronto is, I think, 4,300 people uh, per square <laughs> kilometer. So, you know, you're, you're, you're living on top of, of other people. Um, but uh, just 15 minutes from my door was, was Mongkok Stadium, which was uh, you know, recently renovated, sort of still very quiet, uh, very small, you know, less than 8,000 or 7,000 uh, seats in there. Um, but uh, really, really fascinating neighborhood. So yeah, when I would when I would go for a match, um, it was always a really lovely walk through the markets and the, uh, the bird gardens on the way to, to Mongkok Stadium to take in a match. Um, and both Eastern and Kitchi, which were the two most successful and popular clubs at the time uh, shared the venue. And uh, what should have been my first uh, domestic uh, league fixture, uh, disappointingly wasn't because it was, it was Super Sunday and it was the title decider. Um, this was, uh, I guess, the end of April or the start of May in the first year that I was there. And I remember waking up probably 8 or 9 a.m. and walking to the ground, hoping to get a ticket. And uh, they'd already been sold out. Oh, wow. um, for uh, for that and uh, that particular match, I think Eastern had a one point lead in the table going into it. They only needed a draw to to secure the title um, for the second year running, and uh, they lost four to one to Kitchi. But yeah, that was uh, that that was that would have been an exciting exciting match. But uh, every ground you know has uh, has its sort of own community around it uh, sort of it's nestled within the apartment buildings and industrial estates that surround it um, you know some really holes in the wall restaurants that you'd want to you'd want to visit for your pre-match meal 
and uh yeah always just very kind of quiet and subdued um once you get inside there's uh never really too many people even with the 5,000 seat stadiums you might get one or two thousand people uh in there for for a, a league match um but uh it was just it was really lovely it was you know kind of the for me it was it was very relaxing because the work the work week in hong kong can be quite stressful so a saturday or sunday afternoon match in hong kong was was a way to to cool down for sure and so what would you be having at half time would you be having a you know, a chicken bolty pie and a pint of uh, lager I mean, what would you be having that that was one of the unfortunate things that didn't or maybe fortunate um that didn't carry over from uh from uh, the british legacy was it was a pie and a pint um there wasn't there wasn't much in terms of uh, uh facilities or food stalls in these grounds um you could probably you know walk in with uh with some some uh, dumplings or some uh some steamed pork buns if you wanted to to have a snack um but there wasn't much served that at Hong Kong Stadium, there was a, there was a refreshment stand that sold uh, shu mai, which is uh, steamed pork dumplings, um, for uh, for far too much for for the quality of that. You can find much better food in the surrounding shops and restaurants uh, around the ground. Um, but uh, yeah, could always go for for a bite of French toast and Hong Kong style milk tea as well. You mentioned the walk down to the stadium, you'd go through markets and stuff. That's one of the things I love about, uh, you know, going to Asia, whether it's, you know, I've been to, uh, you know, the Philippines, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia is the, the food stalls and the big open air kind of, kind of markets. What, uh, what's it like to just sort of stumble around and, and, and find your way through those kinds of places there? Well, in Hong Kong in particular was, was, was quite unique because every street had a sort of its own theme. So uh, from my uh, from my place, my apartment to the stadium, you know, I would pass uh, Beer Street, I would pass Sneaker Street, I would pass Flower Market Street, Ladies Market Street, uh, Massage Parlor Street. I mean, it was uh, you, you were getting everything you needed was uh, was was within a ten or fifteen minute uh, radius of where you lived uh, on the way to the ground. So yeah, it, it's certainly a, a unique. Uh, uh, typical sort of Asian experience. No, and the um, you know the, you know you talk about the street names and stuff like that, and the architecture there seems like, you know, while it's skyscrapers and stuff like that, there's some kind of unique touches to some of the buildings over there. Like I know that there's um, a lot of just big holes in the buildings, and I, I know that the uh, the local law would say that it's to allow dragons to fly through them, but I think some architects say they actually know that it's there just to kind of give it a bit of a Ask that you know, just make it look a little bit different, make it a little bit, a little bit interesting. Um, so I know there's some big holes in the buildings. I know there's one building called Jardine House, which is referred to by locals as the house of a thousand assholes. So, um, you know, this this is what I found during my research. I mean, is the is the architecture while it's all modern, is it interesting? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, the uh, property of Property development uh, is a huge, huge industry there in Hong Kong uh, for the price of, of the land that's there. And uh, when when these tycoons get their hands on some land, and they they're going to put up a really fascinating, uh, fascinating piece of piece of architecture. Um, feng Shui plays uh, a huge role in how they construct, uh, you know, modern buildings as well. Uh, so yeah, I think you're right about the holes 
the holes in the buildings is to allow the dragons to fly down from the mountains. Like it's a, uh, if if Game of Thrones ever has uh, has a, a revamp, that I think they should set it in Hong Kong because that would be a really fascinating uh, fascinating setting for it. But um, yeah, it, it's really a good mix of sort of old and 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 modern uh, architecture. You have a lot of. Uh, a lot of apartment buildings that you don't know if they're residential or they're commercial. Um, a lot of them can be can be multi-use. So you'll have a factory floor next to uh, some really tight, cramped cage apartments uh, that you know are sc scattered throughout uh, Hong Kong. Um, and uh, because of its density, uh, because of the uh, things just sort of stacked on top of each other, you know sit yourself in the middle of an intersection and kind of look around and you'll see all, all sorts of styles and, and periods of architectural uh, history. It's, it's fantastic. And, um, you know, all these high-rise buildings and stuff, is it true that a lot of them skip the fourth floor entirely? <laughs> As in there's just a, there's just a void uh, that you have to cross between the third and the fifth floors. Um, yeah, the, the number four in, uh, in Chinese culture, I think, is considered unlucky. So if you go into the lift, uh, there won't be a fourth floor uh, button. Uh, I don't know what residents would do if they're writing their address um, on, uh, you know, if they're sending, if they're sending mail, um, if they can write four on the envelope. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's, there is a lot of, uh, of unique uh, customs there that... Uh, you can kind of play on superstitions and, and that, yeah. I sort of be remiss if I didn't bring up what's you know what Hong Kong has been making news for lately. Um, although the the pro democracy protests, the sort of clamping down and the fears that China is sort of going to bring down a bit more of an iron fist on the territory. Do you uh, do you still have no people there? And 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 if so, what are they saying these days? Yeah, so I, I do still uh, maintain relations and, and friendships with people that I met uh, that are still there. Uh, when I moved from Hong Kong, um, that was in March of 2019. And I did go back for a week in uh, the end of May. And that was really the, um, I would consider the last week of, of old Hong Kong because the very next week, uh, the start of June, <clears throat> the protests began to, to kick off and, and escalate from there. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been it's been sad to witness sort of the the violence and the tensions kind of envelop the city and uh, the images that I see on on media now uh, and in the last year, it's it's unrecognizable. You know, I it, it was never. I never really had any indication of of uh, those tensions and those hostilities and the animosity that that existed when I was there. So to see kind of the transformation that it's undergone uh, politically and socially um, in the last uh, year and a half, two years has been really, really stunning to witness from afar. Um, you know, the, there were times where I would uh, I would go to Instagram or I would go to Twitter to see what my friends were doing and they'd be on their commute home, you know, wading through tear gas clouds, you know, just trying to just trying to get get home. So, yeah, very dramatic. But uh, I'm thankful that uh, that you know I wasn't I wasn't there in in, in the middle of it because uh, living in Hong Kong and working in Hong Kong is stressful enough. And when you have uh, you know kind of what was happening there in the last year or so going on as well, I can't imagine you know how difficult that would be 
for, for the people. Do you have much optimism that there's going to be some sort of hopeful resolution? Well, uh, no, I think it's, I think it's inevitable. Um, the, uh, the Hong Kong is, is not China. Um, you know, that was something I heard a lot when, when I was there and, and something that, uh, you know, I, I sort of was made clear to me when I was there. Um, you know, the, it, it's, it's ruled differently. And, uh, when the, when the British had returned it to uh, China at the end of their 99 year lease, um, there was a, a sort of a joint agreement that Hong Kong would have, would sort of maintain uh, its kind of autonomy to some extent, um, over in, certainly over its own affairs until uh, I guess 2047. So for, for a period of 50 years. And then around uh, 2016, uh, certainly time before that, but I think 2016 was the first time that there was some real major protests um, against some of the actions that the, the Beijing government was, uh, was beginning to do. And then that really escalated last year in 2019. Um, and so there's a, there is, I think, you know, there is a worry that things are just going to change and, and, and they won't be, uh, Hong Kong won't, won't have sort of its, its freedoms, uh, that it, that it, it had got to enjoy for the time prior to that. So, uh, if, you know, when international travel resumes, um, make a point to go to Hong Kong cause it's changing, it's changing rapidly. Um, and, uh, yeah, take it all in while they can. No, one place I quickly read up on before we came on this chat as well was the, uh, the Kowloon Ward City. Um, which I believe you know changed hands. It's like a very very condensed area that was part of Hong Kong, and it changed hands a lot about who owned it and stuff. But um, according to the ever reliable Wikipedia, it was controlled by local triads and had high rates of prostitution, uh, gambling, and drug abuse before it got knocked down, um, which was in the early nineties. I mean, is this a, it's become a park now? Um, I think. But you know, what do you know about the history of this area and uh, and what it's become now? Yeah, Kowloon Walled City was uh, a real fascinating uh, part uh, part of Hong Kong's history and part of Hong Kong's society. Um, I think you were right about uh, with all those dates there. It was the mid-90s when it was eventually raised. Uh, but from the early 20th century, I think a community had really started to, to, to build up there. Uh, and I guess probably in the 50s and 60s is when it really... Uh, began to cramp up and it reached sort of its height in the 70s and 80s in terms of uh, people living in there. And um, uh, it, it no longer exists. As I said, it, it was raised in the, in the mid 90s. And I think that was done because when uh, Hong Kong was to come under Chinese uh, Chinese rule again, um, you know, they didn't want to, they wanted to clean up parts of the city and Kowloon Walled City was was one area that wasn't uh, wasn't going to exist anymore, uh, whether that's fortunate or unfortunately. But um, the, the the site has now been converted into a, a really lovely park. Um, there are a few kind of artifacts and memorials and a little bit of information that you can gain from that. But uh, I, I also took to, to Wikipedia to see um, see some of the stats there. And I think at its height, it said there were. Uh, 
it was a very small area. And so the population density was something close to 2 million people per square kilometer. Um, oh. you know, it was, yeah, it's in, incredible. And, you know, I can't, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine having to just do your daily tasks using the toilet. You're sharing the toilet with a hundred, 200 other people on, on the same floor. Um, it just, uh, for, for us, you know, for the, the comforts that we enjoy, it would just be a complete nightmare. But, uh, yeah, it was its own sort of self-sufficient society, self-sufficient economy. Um, it, it, it existed within Hong Kong, but it wasn't really regulated by, by anyone. I think, uh, uh, the British were kind of too, too worried about, uh, even wanting to go in there and, 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 uh, clean up what was going on. Um, but really a fascinating piece of, uh, of Hong Kong history that, uh, is, yeah, is remarkable to look back on. And you've alluded a couple of times to the absolute craziness and of the speed of life in Hong Kong. Was that one of your initial, you know, big culture shocks when you went over there? And, you know, did you ever get used to that? Yeah, it, it was, it was a definite culture shock. Um, uh, I had been to, uh, before I moved to Hong Kong, a few months before I had, I had come to, to Thailand of all places, uh, for a holiday, a two week holiday. And I remember being very acutely aware walking in Bangkok of how, uh, the atmosphere would kind of permeate your, your, your psyche. And, uh, I felt myself you know, walking quicker and my mind sort of racing all over the place, uh, when I was in Bangkok and that was true in Hong Kong as well. Um, you know, from, you know, sort of when this, the sun, right, the, the sun rises and you, you hear the traffic going and, uh, you know, people are, are on their commute to, uh, cramming into trains and, uh, subways, uh, on their way to work. Um, and it doesn't stop, you know, we, we talk of a New York city as a, a city that never sleeps and Hong Kong is definitely one of those places, uh, where it's just it's going, going all the time. And if you don't, uh, if you're there for an extended period of time and you don't, you know, kind of, uh, take a, a mental health day when you need it, uh, it can really burn you out. And, uh, eventually it did for me. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I decided to leave when I did. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I have so much love um, for it. I miss it a lot. Uh, it, it's a really fascinating place, place to live. I was going to say, I would like to include, you know, because this is sort of a, you know, we, we've talked a bit about football, but um, I know when you guys talk about your travels, you always kind of highlight one particular match uh, or something that you attend. And so I do have a story of, uh, it, was, it was the first uh, fixture that I ended up going to. Um, it was the, uh, AFC champions league, uh, group stage, uh, match and, uh, uh, notable for, for Hong Kong, because it was the first time that a Hong Kong club had, uh, had, had qualified for the group stage of the competition. Uh, and it was the, they had a female, uh, coach at the time, and she was the first, uh, female to, uh, to lead a team to that uh, stage of the competition as well. Um, but the. The match that I got to attend was against uh, Guangzhou Evergrande. Oh wow! Um, you know, big club in China, and uh, the draw for me was uh, was World Cup winning uh, coach Luis Felipe Scolari <laughs> on <laughs> the uh, on the touchline for a uh, big fail for for Guangzhou, um, and uh, former Spurs striker 
Paulinho was uh, was leading their attack, and I think he ended up going to Barcelona after after mm-hmm. that and being you know, surprisingly successful there before returning to uh, his back at Guangzhou now. Um, but that was my my first match, uh, and it was it was at Mongkok Stadium, so you had you know seven thousand people kind of crammed into this stadium for that fixture. Um, and they were playing Eastern. Eastern ended up losing, I think, six to six to nil was the, the final score uh, of that. So you know they weren't really in it from the get go. Uh, but uh, and I wasn't I, again. I wasn't able to to get a ticket. I remember uh, walking to the stadium after work, hoping to get in. Uh, there weren't any tickets being sold at uh, at the windows there. So disgruntled, I'm kind of trudging away, and I happened to see a, a scalper. Uh, you know kind of there to the side and being like, hey, you want a ticket? And I was like, yeah, what are we going for? Um, and the tickets were probably only maybe like $25 uh, Canadian uh, for uh, at the window at the box office. But uh, I ended up paying like probably 80 or $90 uh, for this uh, for this ticket. But it, it was worth it because yeah. uh, it's not often you get to see kind of those kind of those names in a place like that and in a competition like that. Um, and tickets everywhere you go, uh, you're never assigned a seat. You know, you can you walk into the ground and you can kind of sit where you want to. Um, I think when I had uh, when I had contacted you, Dan, I had sent you a picture of me sitting in the forty thousand seat Hong Kong Stadium with my with my legs out because I had the whole the whole end to myself. Um, <laughs> and that's what I would do every ten or fifteen minutes is kind of get up and move around and walk to a different part of the of the ground and, and snap some photos and get a different vantage point. But um, yeah, that first match uh, at Mongkok Stadium uh, for Eastern versus Guangzhou Evergrande was, uh, will we'll, we'll long live in the memory. <laughs> That's really cool. That's really cool. What a unique experience. I love it when you get, well, I mean, that's the, you know, that's why I still think the FA Cup's the best competition ever because you get all these, you know, big name players coming to these small grounds and it's lovely. You could see that on your, on your front doorstep. That's incredible, especially Big Phil, what a character he is. I think he's still working in football as well right now. Yeah, I'm sure he's bounced around. Yeah, he's still around. Yeah, because he was um, when he was when he took over Chelsea, which was a long time ago. Now he openly admitted he did it for the money, and that was a while ago. And he's still because he's still going about doing his business. Good on him. He seems like a real character. Yeah, for sure. Well, lovely. Thanks. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll end things up there. I know Hong Kong is a place I I certainly wanted to uh, to visit, and uh, you've certainly added to that uh, enthusiasm. Whenever that ends. Uh, you know, hopefully our paths do cross somewhere in the world. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm excited to see uh, where the podcast goes next. Yeah, well, we haven't got a clue where it goes next. As <laughs> you, you've, you've had a peep, you've had a peep behind the curtain here, Sean. You can see it's a pretty disorganized affair. So there you go. <laughs> it's more just for fun and we'll see what happens but uh yeah we'll end things there uh as always dan uh we'll we'll see where we go next uh you know we'll send a message and and see where where we go from here yeah we'll see what happens thanks for listening